Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk Radio Show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by co-hosts Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago, 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. You can call us live on air, get your voice heard, 847 847- Eight six six nine six eight seven. All right. Tonight, he sung Mozart, Stravinsky, and Handel in the world's major opera houses. He's given recitals at Carnegie Hall and London's renowned Wigmore Hall. He's just made his debut with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra under Ricardo Muti. American tenor Paul Appleby goes inside the huddle with Oliver Camacho. But first, a recent article by critic Dennis Polko in Chicago's New City magazine suggests that due to what's on stage at Lyric Opera of Chicago, the city risks becoming, quote, a provincial opera town where operatic bonbons are being perceived as a mainstay diet, end quote. Hey, we making you hangry? We're going to give you our hot takes on that story. Plus, Tobias and Weston play Monday evening quarterback on last week's production of Gregory Spears and Greg Pierce's opera fellow Travelers at Lyric Unlimited, and then at 9.40 p.m., or thereabouts, two-minute drill, we tell you everything that you need to know from the past week in opera land, and we grade Opera Philadelphia's recently announced 2018-2019 season on the Dodson scale. We got a great packed show for you tonight, full house in the studio. Oliver Camacho, the only one that's not here, actually, because he was on the beat with Paul Appleby. Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, I'm not even letting these guys get a word in edgeways, and I'll tell you why. It's because I don't want to hear Toby's nonsense about March Madness. It's that time of year again, of course, lots of college basketball happening. Even our international listeners probably know what March Madness is. And of course, my Michigan Wolverines and Tobias's Kansas Jayhawks are on a collision course to play in the final. There's a couple of teams they each need to get through, uh... Wolverines have got to beat the Loyola Ramblers. And look, I mean, we're in Chicago. I, I'm thrilled for Loyola. I think the Sister Jean thing, if you've heard about that, it's this 98-year-old nun who travels with the team. I think that's kind of crazy. I'm not saying good or bad. I'm just saying that's really unusual. Tobias, of course, he picks Kansas to, to go to the uh, championship game, to win the championship game every year. And again, I'm not going to give him a chance to say his rock shock Jayhawk thing. Frankly, when I pick out my bracket, I just let my kids pick their favorite colors. All right, let's talk some opera. How about we root for the home team? Baseball season's underway. It's Opera Box, scoring WNUR 89.3 FM. Starting off with the hometown team segment and looking at an article... In a uh, recent edition of New City Magazine here in Chicago, it's uh, a link is on our website, operaboxscore.com. You can check that out. And uh, Dennis Polko makes the point that, look, shows like La Boheme, Puccini, Verdi, La Traviata, which are part of the lineup next season at Lyric, is that you got lots of chances to see those. 11 performances of Boheme, 10 performances of Traviata. But... Both of those shows have done at Lyric in the last five years. Trovatore, also on the lineup, also Verdi, gets seven performances. And that show was here just four years ago. So you contrast that with shows like Siegfried, four performances, and 
Matt Cummings, there was another show which really stuck out to you, which you took issue with. Maybe I'm biased because I really love Electra. I, I, I did that. That was actually one of my problems with this article is that they were like, well, they just did Electra. I'm like, well, how long ago has it been since they had last did Electra? And they're doing it with a different cast. And the fact that you have two singer, two separate singers who can both sing Electra well and also differently, I, I really think that that in some ways is a benefit in that you get to see more than one take on a work like that. And you don't have to wait three decades for it to come back. I do think you need to have some allowance for for operas like Electra, uh, where, you know, not every company in the in, in the world in the U.S. is, is going to be able to do Electra. So I think a little bit of a little bit of repetition as far as operas like that goes is fine. But I do definitely see the point of the uh, the triple thread of Traviata, Trovatore, and um, whatever. And Boem. Boem. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah, Boem. Weston, why do you say that every opera company in America, not everyone, can do Electra? I mean, what's, what's the barrier? Uh, having a big enough orchestra, having someone who could actually sing Electra. I mean, uh, there are maybe five of them. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 and, and it's, it's an important enough opera in my mind so that it needs to be done. It needs to be renewed, particularly in an era where we're so dominated by, um, Traviata and Bohem. (laughs) Well, not just that, but our, the, the main thrust of singers in the United United States, particularly, are these these smaller voices, these uh, these early edgy Baroque repertoire. We, we we need to preserve these these big time heavy hitters. Plus, what I really like about Electra is that it's a it's a female driven opera. It's three strong yeah. women characters. None of them are. Well, you know, one of them is like a little bit of just a shrinking violet, but none of, and one of them does die. So I guess you really can't, I guess you can't really totally get away from opera all the way there. But it's, you know, it's, it's different and it for a lot, and it was a rarity because it's a couple people in a generation kind of piece. Exactly. And, and if it comes back a third time in 10 years, then maybe I'll be changing my tune. But that I think is one of one, that's one of the offerings of next year that I'm actually excited about. Now, on the other side of the coin, the point that the article makes is that there's only four opportunities to see Wagner's Siegfried, but I think what this article misses is that, like, it costs a lot of money to do a single performance of Siegfried, so, mm. I, I mean, I, this to me, this seems like just smart budgeting. Yeah, and Well, it is smart budgeting, and that's why they're doing it, is to save themselves financially. And I, But, so, th- in doing so, I think that any gripe that we have about the lack of performances is because we're questioning artistic integrity because it's become then a financial decision that they're doing this. It's not an artistic decision to only do four performances, and I think that's the that's the disappointing thing. I think for you, Matt, right? It's yeah, kind of what you were getting in. At. It's good. And well, Ed Siegfried is going to be back very soon because it's going to be there for the whole ring cycle when they do it, either next year or the year after that. I can't remember if they're if they're rolling it all out when they premiere Get a Demerung or or if they're going to do it all four and then one year that has all of them. That but. Uh, Siegfried is long and it has a big cast and it has a big orchestra and it is kind of, frankly, kind of boring. It's a hard <laughs> sell, com- especially compared to the other operas in the ring. I think it. Yeah, it's the most boring of the. Yeah, four. it's There's really no boring. It, it is the least interesting of the cycle. I mean, I love me some Wagner, but uh, it. I mean, you, you do only get so far with putting the dragon in your marketing, you and, know. And if you're only going to see one of the ring operas on its own, you might see Valkyrie. But, or you might say get a Demering, but you're not going to just go like, oh, I'm up, I'm up for a Siegfried tonight. Who <laughs> who doesn't want to go see Siegfried on Tuesday? To all our Siegfried fans out there, thanks for joining us <laughs> There <tonight>. aren't any. <laughs> there are no Siegfried fans. <laughs> I mean, the article make a, makes a big deal about the idea of, you know, the subscription base. And it quotes yeah. Danny Newman, who was one of the legends of subscription sales. I mean, he kind of not invented the idea, but he certainly perfected the idea. And and the quote from Newman that's in the article is, is his, his famous thing, which he said was, do not pluck the raisins from our cake. Our season is our cake, and we have diligently prepared it for you to feast on the entire cake, not mere morsels of it. Uh, first of all, now I'm just hungry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. For cake. But second of all... Uh, I'm going to mix my metaphors here. Like, the bakery of opera has changed. 
I think it has. Stay with me, Weston. No, I mean, I, I, <laughs> no, I think the con- the the consumers have changed, and I, I more than even the consumers. Even I think the economy has changed. There are a lot more people who work who work in a gigging economy, and I don't even just mean musicians. Like there are so many freelancers out there. There are so many temps out there. Uh-huh. People are changing jobs more often. People are having a harder time finding jobs. Committing to a season is a committing to a season subscription. Absolutely, it's hard to say. Because subscription sales have started already. Yeah. It's hard for me to say, uh, next March 10th, I want to attend, you know, whatever's playing on. Right. I don't even know what the schedule is for sure. I mean, so absolutely. And I, if Lyric wants to become, venture into more just single ticket sales and that's going to be how they try to sell out these shows, I mean, that's that's hard. I mean, because you lose total demographics to that. You know what I mean? And I think of our generation specifically. Like, we can't buy a subscription because Lord only knows where we're going to be or right. how we're going to do it. Your generation. Speak for yourself, right? It's <laughs> <laughs> Opera Box Score on WNUR. We're talking about an article from New City Magazine looking at lyrics' diminishing returns, shall we say, and the ways that there are more performances of operatic war horses happening than there are of the uh, lesser-known works in the cycle. What's up with the 7 p.m. curtains, by the way, for uh, uh, lyrics? That's another thing. If if this solves, however, if this solves the problem of people, like, booking it before the opera is over to try to make the last metra out to the suburbs, yeah, that, for me, comes, I come down on the plus side of that. Like, the cost-benefit yeah. analysis of that is, is an improvement to me. People, although... People will do that even if the next metro is not for another hour. <laughs> They're like, "Well, I have to get to the station first. I do think it's. I do think it's. It's interesting. Um, I think they made the point in the article that a lot of these. Deci- uh, well, that decision in particular was pointed out as being uh, a product of the um, the Survey. uh, surveys they've been sending out after each show, and I do think that that there is a certain point where you know the, the opera company does need to. Understand how people are seeing their shows. You know, you know. know. It it comes down to the fact that they have to be selling a product that people want to buy. Well, so part of me wonders if these adjustments and what they're doing, and particularly with this season, is if they're trying to cultivate the next generation of opera goers. And so, like, maybe this isn't a forever thing where they keep where Bohem gets done eleven times and Siegfried only gets done four. Um, Because I don't. For me, it's weird because. I get sad when I see anything about an opera company uh, reducing the number of performances because that tells you that things are not going well. Um, You mean the number of shows they're doing in a season or the number of actual presentations of a given show? Well, in this case, the presentations of a given show. Um, If the lyric ever, God forbid, I mean, that'd be devastating for them to say, you know, we're moving to a six-show season. Right. And and it would... This this art this article does bring up one of my least favorite strawmen about the Lyric Opera of Chicago, which is why are they doing a musical in the spring? Mm-hmm. And it's because the house would be sitting empty anyway. They did not cut a perform. They did not cut a production to do this musical. It is a separate thing. They, pure, if they can make money off of it, profit. Why is that a bad thing? Yeah. It, and I. Uh, and that's exactly it. The reason you do a musical is to make money. It's not to like try and get musical theater people to go see opera. I don't, I don't believe that's the intention. Maybe I'm totally wrong. No, it's just it's just like you've got the venue, get it in, get people in there and get them seeing the show. And, that, and plus I, the line between the line between musical theater and opera is kind no, of specious to- at best. Yeah, that's you, yeah, you could argue about that for days. <laughs> and I have. <laughs> well, look, I mean, obviously the the one piece that really is not in this conversation is fellow travelers. That was the piece at Lyric Unlimited, and uh, we want to do a little Monday evening quarterbacking on that. Pass or fail. Here's Monday evening quarterback. I hope I hope all of that sing along was live. I really do. I think I think my microphone was muted. <laughs> Appropriately so. It was a good call. We, good every, call people, was, people missed out. That's I'm my bad so call. I'm so excited now. <laughs> I know that always excites Toby. <laughs> Best music ever. It really is. I want it in the background of my life. Actually, Lyric is doing that opera next year. <laughs> the NFL Films yes. opera. <laughs> I thought they were going to do one shining moment. <laughs> <laughs> one shining moment. All right. Well, most of us. But hey, wait. Talking room. about one shining moment, yeah, yeah, really go. quick. <laughs> I just am really hopeful that Sister Jean makes it. Uh, oh. Like, 
Yeah, she's ninety eight. Yeah. I understand that. There's a lot of excitement going on. She'll be fine. Okay, we hope so. Anyway, you, sorry. You, She'll pray uh, about it. God is on her side. Most of us in this room saw fellow travelers. Oliver called the production an unqualified <laughs> success, and specifically, he said that Greg Spears, Greg Spears. Um, excuse me, Greg Pierce, Greg Spears, and the cast and production team really reached the full potential of this art form. They were giving the audience a work that was accessible and challenging. It was original and familiar. It gave voice to characters we cared about, whose arias were fully earned and will rightfully take their place in the canon. And that moved him to want to experience it again. That's about as praiseful as I think Oliver would ever get it on is the capable piece of, of opera. Is capable of, yeah, in his, in his cold black heart. Let's call a spade a spade. Uh, I mean, Weston. Yeah. It, will this show rightfully take its place in the canon as Oliver says? I, uh, I, I am leaning towards yes. Uh, it's... Um, it is very... Uh, musically, compositionally, I think it is a fantastic piece. Uh, uh, Gregory Spears has a very distinct operatic voice um, that is kind of unusual, I think, in contemporary composers. Uh, that it feels like it's going to stick around. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this opera will make it, but I think something of his will make it, based on what I know of Gregory Spears' music, yeah. which is this and like two pieces I've heard uh, on the internet somewhere. Um, but it, I, I do agree with Oliver. It was. It, it, it hit. It, to me, it kind of walked that line. Of uh, of challenging and accessible um, in a really highly effective way, and uh, the performances were all very top notch. I thought. Um, th- I think the one thing where it kind of fell fell down a little bit. I think the staging was kind of uninspired. I mean, it was adequate, but it was it was not it was it, it was not high budget uh, sort of production as far as. The uh, the staging, the set, uh, the costumes were nice, I guess, but it was it was all adequate. Well, mm-hmm. I, it was econ- it was economical. Though. Yeah, Do you know absolutely. what I'm saying. I yeah. mean, the, the set I, was I, a series of these five uh, filing thick, wide filing cabinets, which created yeah. interiors of of uh, Capitol Hill, which then turned to reveal other more domestic interiors. I thought that was kind of a, a simple economical gesture. Mm-hmm. It was, but it was also. It, it, it uh, it it screamed uh, cheap naturalism in a way that I don't think was supported by the music. Uh, the music uh, really felt like it, there needed to be something more uh, presentational uh, outside the total realm of reality in term in just how because you know Gregory Spears you know was working with uh, the two min- uh, the two ideas of minimalism and. Uh, Medieval troubadour music, uh, according to the program, and you could hear it in the music. Um, but it was very much sort of uh, trying. It was it, it created this sort of unearthly sort of musical soundscape that I did not think lent itself well to people walking around in the real world, and that was detracted somewhat by the ec- economy of the sets. Now I have to say, the fact that they were able to, you know, do. Put the money in the proper places, because really, with an opera like this, you want to make sure that the money's in the singers, in the orchestra. You don't really need uh, to be counting pennies when you're trying to put on a big, lavish uh, set design. So I, I do think that ultimately they made the right decision if they were sacrificing something, but it did feel like a sacrifice. Speaking of the singers, Toby, you're a tenor. One of the two male leads in the show was also a tenor. What's what's your take on that performance? Um, so I was. I thought Jonas Hacker was incredible. Um, and what I, do you when you hear him sing? What are you hearing? Uh, there's an well, one. It was such a crystal clear tone, um, and I think with Spears' music here, it needed that. Um, it didn't need a big, thick, uh, rumbling sound. It needed precision um, because the score actually there's a lot of movement vocally. Um, that I thought was really challenging, and I thought a lot of them. I thought it was. I really was impressed by the entire cast, but I thought Jonas Hacker was incredible. I thought his top was awesome. He has the aria um, in the first act in that, the church. In the church. Oh man! That I I I, I had tears. It was unbelievably yeah. beautiful. And I think you know that we talk about moving into the canon, and I, and I could absolutely see 
that piece being something that wins contests for people here in the future. I mean, if it, if it's sung the way that it was sung on that stage when I saw it last Wednesday. Um, I really, though, you know, the economy of the set didn't bother me. Um, I wasn't... The action was slow. Uh, that's my criticism of it, um, is that it, it, the action was slow, but that was okay. And then I guess the other criticism that I would have, which I have very few, I cannot emphasize enough how beautiful this show was, mm. both in content, um, musicality, and the acting, I thought was f- phenomenal. Um, musically, though, it is a little... Uh, it it does kind of fall into a category for me that gets annoying with new opera, where it's like ballad after ballad after ballad. And it sounds to me a little too cinematic, um, says hmm. says me who loves Puccini. And like, <laughs> it's a fu- yeah, I mean, I felt like a lot of that transition music, which is what, as a director, I would call it, a composer would not call it that. I thought that was really helpful and kind of helped to to bind this whole piece together. You mean in between the singing? Correct. Absolutely, and I would agree with that. But I'm saying that the music gotcha. sometimes when singing, it was almost too too much slow. Gotcha. It was no, it was almost too right. pretty. I felt uh, like it was, but I mean, God, I'm well. I, I do I'm think really, that, I, that's not even an actual criticism. I'm just I'm reaching yeah. here. I I, I kind of see what you mean. There, there was the uh, I I think it very much fits Spears's style of you know everything's in sort of this musical stasis. Um, everything is kind of kept at this level that is not quite. There, there's not really a moment to kind of sit and look at something. Uh, something outside of the world of the music, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, <laughs> there, it, it's all it, it. It just keeps fluttering away, um, and I th- yeah. I think that was. And you know what's me, really interesting here that we've not talked about is that we all I think are in uh, we think highly of the production that we saw, and we haven't even discussed topically what it, you know. Oh it's, yeah! It's oh yeah! Speaking about you know, it's about things. <laughs> um, it is about things. It is about love, and it is about homosexuality, and it is about having to be closeted to protect identities uh, from. I mean, like it. You know, we. It's completely tackled just as much today as it was when it was happening in the fifties when McCarthy was when this was going on. Um, All right, here we go. Final thought. This is going to connect it back to the go. article in New City. Cut me when off. When you looked around the house. Uh huh. At the performance that we, uh, Weston, Tobias, and I were all at the same performance. And you looked around the house. That is the most diverse audience you will see at Lyric Opera of Chicago this season. Diverse yeah. in terms of age. True. Diverse in terms of gender. Diverse in terms of race. Diverse in terms of sexuality. If Lyric wants to get keep this opera company going and get it going uh, for future generations, all they needed to do was to look around that room. The show is in Cincinnati. It's been in New York. Now Chicago. It's going on to Minnesota. After the break, he's one of the sought-after voices of his generation. Tenor Paul Appleby goes inside the huddle with creative consultant Oliver Camacho. Keep it locked on Opera Box Score and WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result, 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Yeah. Zapper box score on WNUR 89.3 FM. We got a lot of people in the house tonight. I'm George Cedarquist with Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams, the one man not in the house. He has been working hard, hard, hard interviewing the likes of Paul Appleby. Last Friday, Oliver caught up with Appleby the day after his debut with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And in this interview, they also referred to the 2016 recital, which he presented at University of Chicago. And that's where Oliver first fell for the tenor heartthrob. The conversation (laughs) begins with Appleby describing how he applies his 
text-forward approach to singing in an opera house, but first let's listen to an excerpt from him singing in Nico Muley's opera, Two Boys. I'm only sixteen Look, I get up I go to school And go to football And come That's sort of a goal I have for myself as I get older and just try and mature is that the distance between my approach to singing a song, singing a Schubert mass mm-hmm. or concert piece or an opera, that they, they become more and more just a, a singular function or event okay. vocally. Um, and for my, as you were talking about how I approach it text first, I'm, I'm always trying to now play to my weaknesses more because my strengths kind of take care of themselves and so I'm trying always to increase my legato and just and color letting that be more present because it's not my natural instinctual way to approach whatever I'm singing whether it's an opera role or a song or anything in between so um, I'm finding that uh, it's all actually about vocal technique more than any other thing more than about text or color and those kind of considerations but um, I'll, if I, I launch into this I had a really interesting week with Muti this week. Okay. Like Schubert mess. <laughs> Am I digressing too much? No, no, no. I, I love it. I, we all want to hear about Muti. So. Because he was really... Uh, you can probably hear I have a little cold. I'm, I've been nursing a, this congestion from a cold from last week. And it's been really challenging because he's been so precise in what he's asking for us soloists, and mm-hmm. especially me, because that at Incarnatus S, as you yeah. said, is the kind of like the crown jewel yeah. of that whole mass. That's the reason to program that mass. Basically. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what Muti thinks. And yeah. so he was really, really precise and very demanding of all of us soloists. And the thing is, the it's actually, it's not really difficult part for any of us. It's But it has to, it sits in the sort of upper middle voice range, sort of pre-Passaggio, and then you kind of float up to, Mm -hmm. you have to sing this kind of very heady mix up to Gs and A-flats. And so he was, on all of our cases, but especially us, me and Nick, the tenors, Mm -hmm. to create this color that was very light and like diaphanous or whatever, Mm -hmm. but still kind of connected to the core of the sound. And so actually it was really challenging Mm -hmm. because he wouldn't let us just kind of sing it out the way that we prepared ourselves to or normally do and apply our the techniques yeah. that we usually use as but for singers. those of you who aren't singers this doing this type of singing can get very fatiguing like you need to lock you need to connect into the breath right to, to relax the chords and if you're doing this super instrumental like high you know or contra sound exactly the chords just get tired well that well or you have to like really dig and find a way to find that support and it's been actually as hard as it's been i've actually learned a lot this week because he's been so demanding about keeping the sound focused, which is a way of talking about the chords, actually staying in contact, but at the same time, we have to have so much breath support so that they're they're close, really close, but you have the control so that they stay close without too much air getting through, and mm-hmm. it's very complex. But I found it to be a great voice lesson, actually, and I, as frustrating as it was, mm-hmm. and a little scary as it was to have Muti, like, riding us so hard, I'm really appreciative of it because it forced us, it forced me to 
find a way to create a, a very specific color that focused the sound and projected without being anything above a very quiet kind of sound. So. Yeah. I find that there's a spontaneity in your phrasing, a spontaneity in the way you are singing, and I felt like you did not practice it this way. Like, you were doing something completely new in this moment. Like, you're thinking while you're singing. Is that happening, or is that something that you're actually practicing to feel like you're spontaneous? I, you, I'm really impressed that you're, everything you're saying is, I'm very flattered by it, and because it's stuff that I actually do work on consciously, so I really appreciate that that at least someone recognizes it. You are. You, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that that is, like that recital, for example, with Ken Noda. Mm -hmm. Ken and I worked really closely for years. Um, he was works with me when I was a young artist at the Met, and ever since then, we've done a lot of song stuff together. And his approach has been really useful to me because it's about just preparing the hell out of whatever you're doing and just spending as much time as you can, especially when you're working in a, a small ensemble like that, mm -hmm. so that... There's all these sort of subconscious cues and ways of communicating that you're not even conscious of that start to develop between you and your, your whoever you're collaborating with, mm -hmm. whether it's an orchestra or a pianist or whatever. And so you never know what's going to happen on a day. And as you, if the more preparation you can do and just feel so secure, then you can let whatever happens in the moment, whether it's the acoustic of the room, the people in the room, how they're reacting, how you're feeling... Dramatic pauses you decide to take. Yeah, and just kind yeah. of let that have the trust in yourself and in your colleague or colleagues that we know what we're doing, and let's just let the moment happen and respond to it, and that is when the magic happens. You right. Know? If you're just like, this is how we do it, and it's precise, and we got to hold on tight and make sure we get it just right, then you, I, a, that's not any fun, and it invites this kind of tension into your body and into your whole energy that people will sense and it won't make people feel relaxed it won't make you feel relaxed and the music won't the overtones will start to diminish and the sound and all kinds of so yes that freedom kineticism whatever it is mm -hmm. spontaneity i definitely cherish that and, okay. and you have to work really hard to so you're achieve. saying that there's something that you established with ken and that you you worked with him but have you ever wanted to be that way on an opera stage oh no i mean yes that's that's mm -hmm. my goal always yeah. always but um but has it gotten you trouble gotten you into trouble like trying to be more like i'm gonna just do this you know how oh, it, it gets you in trouble if you're not prepared to do it S spontaneity and freedom is something you have to earn through a lot of hard work mm -hmm. you know what i mean because that's something you learn is that your brain, you're building, you know, neural pathways, and that's what practicing, and it's all physical, muscle memory, all that stuff. Even teaching yourself how to think about how I'm going to sing this phrase, you know what I mean? How I'm going to, what this song means, how, how I'm going to shape that closed e-vowel in that mm -hmm. French song, you know what I mean? And how I'm going to, all those little details, you have to, you have to attend to them. You've spent a lot of time physically rehearsing them for that, all those reasons, mentally practicing the exercise and the thought process that you're going to employ. So I found that if I'm not, if I try and be spontaneous without really doing the homework, then that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's what I've learned. The hard work and preparation and rehearsal is all about giving yourself the chance to be spontaneous because you've developed that kind of trust with your ensemble and with your own instrument well your main career right now in opera at least as far as i could see is as a mozartian i think actually there's a quote that you're a mozartian heartthrob <laughs> oh really somebody said that somewhere oh, nice. i think how oh, nice yeah. um so i think a lot of us who have studied um you know classical voice opera we you know have this concept of mozart as not being a repertoire you can be necessarily spontaneous in. Like once, once the piece gets going, you're you're in that rhythm. You're not doing really big changes of dynamics. You know, you're not, you know, doing a lot of rubato like that type of stuff. Yeah. So how do you balance that, like your natural musical personality, with singing Mozart? That's a great question. I I think I've been thinking about this question a lot because I'm I'm starting to move beyond Mozart, mm -hmm. um, in my rep, and you know you hear everyone tells you every young person needs to sing Mozart. But I think, I, I understand now that mm -hmm. I'm kind of coming out of mm -hmm. <laughs> it being the so, so central to everything I do. Mm -hmm. um, what's so hard about Mozart, singing Mozart opera for everybody, and especially for tenors, I think, the lesson that you, you have to learn in Mozart is you have to learn how to sing in your passaggio with incredible 
flexibility. And by flexibility, I don't mean like coloratory, but, yeah. but I mean like colors. And yeah. you, be, you need to be able to shape vowels in an E natural and an F and an F sharp. You need to be saying an A ah and an O and an E and an U and shape them and just right shade them so that the color connects to the emotional content of the phrase, fits into whatever the, you know, if the phrase is ascending or descending, it changes all those little details. And it's so easy to get, start manipulating your larynx and your throat and your jaw and your mouth to try and achieve those ends. And so really to learn how to sing Mozart with the freedom to do that without that that precision of in the passaggio and still be able to have the breath support to go up above it and sing high notes and <laughs> keep your voice in a healthy place, that is really hard. And every singer, I think, has to learn how to do that. And Mozart forces you to do that. And it's kind of, if you can't figure it out through Mozart, then you're going to have a hard time later on in your career when you've outgrown Mozart. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because everyone, not everyone outgrows Mozart, but a lot of us are able to do things we weren't able to do before Mozart in a weird way. Do you so know what I mean? Do you have some you know, passion repertoire that you're going towards right now? Yeah, well, actually, that's, that's a, that's a, I'm, I'm exploring a lot of new things right yeah. now. Like, I'm singing Paleos next year at the Met for the first time. I'm so excited I saw that. I'm really I'm excited. Try to go. And actually, that, preparing for that role has been really eye-opening to me because <clears throat> I've learned a big lesson from it. Funny, I'll tell you an interesting story that was kind of a, a light bulb went off for me. I had been singing, I had sung the role of, uh, Benedict in Beatrice and Benedict yeah. and Berlioz at Glyndebourne two summers ago, I think it was. And, you know, we did like 14 performances or something of it at Glyndebourne. And it's a tricky role. It's hard. It's it's up and down and up and down. And there's a lot of high notes, but also kind of low. It was it was tough. And I remember I'd always warm up. I'd warm up like crazy before those shows. And I was worried always about making sure I could get up top and make sure my voice was light enough in the middle voice and the passage so that I wasn't like carrying up too much weight. And, it, you know, I managed to do it, but... Later that year, I got a call from the Paris Opera because they were doing a concert of that and their tenor canceled. So on a Wednesday, the concert was a Friday. I flew Wednesday night, landed Thursday morning, did a dress rehearsal that morning and uh, then the show Friday night. And I somehow did it and it was great. And the thing is, I just gotten the Paleos contract offered to me so uh, earlier that year. So I'd been deliberately working on lower repertoire to try and work on my lower middle voice, which Paleos requires especially from a tenor. So I'd been deliberately trying to grow my lower part of my voice in a healthy way. And so I'd been in the middle of singing, actually I was singing a lot of song stuff. I was singing like these Schubert songs that were like in the baritone key and Tel Jour Tel Nuit by Poulenc, which is this Bariton Martin kind of yeah. thing. And I was worried actually about doing the Berlioz because I'd been deliberately singing lower tessitura stuff. And then I went to Paris and all of a sudden like the top for me was like so much easier and way better all of a sudden. And I was worried that I'd been singing low stuff, so, oh, gosh, this is going to be a mess. And it kind of crystallized this idea that had sort of been slowly f forming in my mind that it's really important to learn how to be very efficient with your sound in the bottom of your range. Yeah. And then if you do learn something about how to support that and get the right balance with your vocal onset and all this other stuff, yeah. That that's actually the the foundation that everything else can be built upon. So I've had a lot of fun. Wow, this is a super tangent, but maybe interesting if we, <laughs> if we get it right. This is bel canto that you're what you're talking about. Yeah, like and that's right. You're not known as a bel canto singer, but are you finding now a bel canto technique? I think I'm. Yeah, I think I, I think that's kind of what's happening. It's it's weird. Um, a lot of new doors are starting to open to me, and I'm quite, I'm not sure which is the right one to to walk through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Whether it's Please stay smart. Oh, no, sure, sure. No, I, Don't become dumb tenor. That, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I, 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 I'm trying to figure out what the right choice is, but I don't know if it's... I have Peleos sounds like an amazing choice to me. Well, Peleos <laughs> is great, but Peleos is such a specific, yeah. like, sui generis kind of role. So yeah. it's been really helpful, but, you know, I, I, I do think I want to try and venture into some more bel canto or at least some more French, 19th century French repertoire, because that is a really interesting... Like Romeo way. or like Fauster? Maybe not Romeo yet. That that That's a little sizable yeah. still, I think. Yeah. But I think a role like Nadir. Oh, yeah. And maybe even um, actually Descrieux in the, the Manon, the Messonnet. Messonnet, okay. I think those are actually a little, those are the orchestration and the way the, the roles sit are a little more yeah. on the lyric side. And then maybe Faust and then maybe Romeo. But 
and then eventually who knows from there. But I think those roles for me are ones that I, I want to start focusing on. In addition to... Too my... bad nobody stages La Guadis. <laughs> well, I always got that, that party piece for that. Yeah. <laughs> you sing it very well. Oh, thank you. But that's yeah. But I definitely also see want to keep things like Handel and Britain very central to my rep. And so I'm working really hard. I'm doing to, to get those gigs. Because <laughs> yeah. Handel, again, it sits... The tenor roles tend to sit a little lower. So I'm finding it really useful to help me grow that part of my voice so that... The whole the whole infrastructure of my voice is growing. Are we thinking like Jupiter or Semele or? Well, Asus I'm doing or... I'm doing Samson this summer oh, wow. okay. at the Edinburgh Festival, and uh, I'm doing a couple other things. I don't think I can talk about in the future, mm-hmm. but yeah, some some of the Italian roles, and definitely some of the English oratorial roles. Yeah. I haven't I don't have any plans to do it, but I like Jephtha, for example, is yeah. one that I'm oh, just. It's long though, but it's no, I know, yeah, but yeah. that's the, exactly. It's yeah. a great way to sort of yeah. start to build stamina. For, what about Theodora? I would. Okay. Jump at it. I mean, again, it's, it's not... It's not a coloratura, though. Are you comfortable with that? Yeah. No, it takes work. And, um, for example, I've been working a lot on... Um, I'm going to be doing a Rotolinda okay. in a couple of years. And that's also just, like, to keep that in your voice is yeah. so important. Because I do think I'll eventually, in time, get to Tito, Clemenza mm-hmm. de Tito and Idomeneo. And coloratura is surely important in those things. And I think it's important to keep... Force yourself to do that. And I try and sing as much Bach as I can just when I warm up and sing and to keep that in that flexibility always present because yes. otherwise that's why they call Handel the great voice teacher I think because it forces you to keep that balance so you don't over sing you can't under sing and under support yeah. or it won't work so it, it, it forces you to find the the right sort of engagement and keep the flexibility in terms of coloratura and the way it approaches the passaggio all that stuff is why Handel I think needs to should be in any, anybody's sort of yeah. repertoire because it it doesn't matter if your voice is small or big, really, to do handle well, I don't think, as long as you keep the, that healthy balance and flexibility in your voice. I agree with you. I'm, I... But, but one thing, I'll tell you, the other role, I just want to get this out there, world. <laughs> I, I'm really, I'm really, Britain roles are really important to me, too. And I think Peter Grimes is a role that Ugh. that I'm working towards as well. You don't have that craggy quality in your voice. You're more going to be like a Philip Langridge, Peter Grimes. Than yeah, a... I mean, like, Anthony Rolf Johnson, yeah. for example, is a singer I really admire, and um, not that my voice sounds like him, but yeah, Philip Langridge yeah. and those English guys. Yeah. And I, I, my sound is not exactly like theirs. Yeah. Certainly is not like Piers, right? Yeah. I'm so glad we got there. <laughs> Nor is it like Vickers, for that matter, is, but... <laughs> this is the last question I have for you, which is always a very complicated question to answer, but maybe you've thought about this. You, I would put you in the category of, of us as being a stylist singer. Yeah. And Americans are not known for being stylists. Um, how do you feel going into, you know, Edinburgh or other, you know, European houses as the American? And do you feel that there's already a preconception about what you're going to be like as an American? And do you notice the difference with other, you know, with European singers? Hmm. Yeah. Yes. Well, it 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 does de- definitely depends on the country. Mm-hmm. So I did, for if you example, have generalizations. We love stereotypes of like that. <laughs> well, no, I just mean like what what country sort of thinks of their that as their music. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I did I performed in Saul in Glyndebourne, the Handel Oratorio Saul, mm-hmm. and I think I was the only American in that cast. And I fit in easily enough, just because we all you know we spoke English and. Um, that was really instructive to me because it was because the whole cast was English except for me. Um, I was able to kind of slip in there, and my name is super Anglo anyway. Yeah. So yeah. I think people, if they didn't know who I was, would just assume I was you know a, you know English myself. Um, but it's been though, getting to do opera like that is really useful because there's just a long rehearsal period. Yeah, it was staged. Okay, oh cool. yeah, it was brilliant staging. Barry Kosky is great, and actually we're doing it again in Houston. I don't, I don't know if I can tell you about this, but we're doing it in the future at an American <laughs> opera company in like a year or two. <laughs> um, so, but that was really, but I definitely felt a lot of pressure and it was Ivor Bolton, who's also an English early music kind of specialist conducting it. And I definitely feel a lot of pressure to get up to speed with where they all are because it's just, just in their yeah. tradition. You know what I mean? It's like how they grow up. They sing this choral music. They're all so much more familiar with Handel's music. So I definitely feel a pressure to do it, but it's so rewarding to sort of take on the demands of that very specific discipline. Whereas, um, for example, I remember I sang with uh, Manfred Honig, who's 
Austrian, and he invited me to his festival that he runs called the Wolf Eck Festival at mm-hmm. this old castle. And but I, I we sang uh, the creation of Haydn, okay, and that was terrifying. I mean, in German, of course, it was mm-hmm. Die Schöpfung, I should yeah. say. And I, I'll never forget that experience because we're in you know Austria with an Austrian audience singing Haydn to them for yeah. goodness sakes, and and the, the that kind of pressure is it's a lot of pressure, but it, it forces you to understand where that tradition comes from and what it's really about and you get to know the people and the singers who do it so um i've just been really grateful for those experiences and i'm always seeking them out because yeah that's a good i'm not a generalist (laughs) you know what i mean i try and find pieces that really i have something to say about that flatter me and my instrument yeah well it's been so amazing talking to you and we're already at the 40 minute mark oh gosh i know i can't use all 40 of these so uh, audience, you're missing a really great part of this conversation, which I had to edit out, and I apologize for it. Some real tenor nerding out here. Yeah. That's great. But thank you so much, and uh, congratulations on your CSO debut. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. This is America's talk radio show about opera with George Cedarquest, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. And there you have it, Paul Appleby with Oliver Camacho. Yeah, that was awesome. I was, I was, I was eating it all up. That was great. <laughs> that was, I first of all, just thanks to Paul for doing that, and thanks to Oliver mm-hmm. for setting it up. So insightful, and the poor guy, man. I mean, he sounded like he sounded like a bass baritone. He had a bit of a scratchy throat there with he that did cold. Sound like he had a cold. It was yeah. like one of the few times the singer's like, oh, I have a cold. And I was like, yeah, you do. Yeah, you definitely do. <laughs> no, man. Hey, ball don't lie. Ball don't lie. Ball don't lie. Uh, he was in uh, the premiere of Lucrezia, Toby. I hey, actually did was. You, did you know that? N- I did. Yeah. Uh, that's how I first became familiar mm-hmm. with him. Because yeah. I think they did that at like Carnegie Hall exactly. on the stage. And... Exactly. Lucrezia. Yeah. Hey, uh, Chicago Opera Theater broke the Dodson scale a few weeks back. Can Opera Philadelphia top them? That's next on America's Talk radio show about opera on WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Give me 60 more seconds of your time so I can share a secret with you. When I tell people about Opera Box Score, they always ask, how come we're a live talk radio show, not just a podcast? The answer? We want to give listeners like you the chance to call into our show and have your opinion heard live on air. It's easy. Stream our show live on WNUR.org slash popup on Mondays at 9 p.m. Central Time. Then give us a call during the broadcast with your take on what we're talking about. The number? 847-866-WNUR. Wait, do people even have letters on their phones anymore? 847-866-9687. Talk to you later. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land. In less than two minutes, Opera Philadelphia has announced its 2018-2019 season. We're going to get to those titles in a second. The nominees for the 2018 International Opera Awards have been published. San Francisco Opera, Florida Grand Opera, Opera Philadelphia, Lyric Opera of Chicago, and Chicago Opera Theater are the American companies up for various prizes. Mezzo-soprano Teresa Berganza will be presented with the Lifetime Achievement Award. Handel's opera Alcina is filled with virtuosic arias. One character, Bradamante, has a powerful, rage-filled number in which the second phrase of the aria has 72 notes. Well, mezzo-soprano Daniela Mack was singing the role at Washington National Opera when conductor Jane Glover challenged her to sing the epic line without a breath. Could she do it? We'll play that clip next. Some Iowa prison inmates will get a chance to raise their voices for an audience a thousand miles away. When they're recorded singing and then featured as part of a production of Beethoven's Fidelio with New York City's Heartbeat Opera Company, exit stage right mezzo-soprano Ariel Vibe, who died last week at the age of 75, in 18 consecutive seasons with the Metropolitan Opera from 1977 to 95, she sang... 460 performances in both leading and supporting roles, including her debut jumping in at the last minute for Teresa Stratus 
in Kurt Weill's rise and fall of the city of Mahogany, and on this day, March 26th, it was the death of Noel Coward in 1973. That's your two-minute drill. Subject to interpretation and analysis, let's crunch the numbers. Thank you, Norm. Is that a new bit? Eh, it's an old bit. Ah, I like that bit. Some Let's some months ago, we had a, 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 a segment called Crunching the Numbers, but I felt it was very apropos for this Opera Philadelphia story, actually. Opera Philadelphia has just released their season, and we scored it on the Dodson scale. You can look up those metrics on our website, operaboxscore.com. Just go to Dodson scale, which is trademarked, a feature by Doug Dodson of the Opera Now podcast, the granddaddy of them all. And, of course, we base these stats just from the press release that Opera Philadelphia sent to us. So, um, and boys, you can chime in here. The first show in the season, and, of course, Opera Philadelphia really has two parts to its season, right? It has what's called the O Festival, which is a whole, like a, a two-week or maybe like a 17-day jam-packed whirlwind of big shows and little opera shows. Opera land in Philadelphia. Yeah, just I, I call it opera land, yeah. Just in spaces <laughs> all around all around the city. So uh, there's a new production of um, Lucia di Lamarmora directed by Laurent Pelli, which is a co-production with the Wiener Staatsoper. And of course, on the Dodson scale, that would get you a total of zero points. Yeah, not a good start. Not a good start, but where boy, did they go from there, George? Well, where they, did they go? Let's they, crunch some more numbers. Well, they really, they really picked it up after that. So, so listen to this. That is followed by three different world premieres, and on the Dodson scale, if you do a show after 1950, five points. If it's after 2000, another five points, and if it's a world premiere, another five points. Boom. So automatically, this new production of a piece called Ne Quittez Pas, which is based uh, as a companion piece to Poulenc's Le Voix Humaine, 15 points. Another uh, site-specific work called Glass Handle, which I, I read the press release a number of times, and I really still did not quite understand what it was. You're going to have to go to like Land. Installation with uh, like a boutique high end jewel maker. I was very confused by that too. This was a very confusing press release, and just in general, I think very wandering and didn't I, explain anything. I didn't, I didn't find the press release confusing. I just found that one part. I, I wasn't quite sure, but hey, yeah. got them another fifteen points. Now this is the big one. It's a new piece called Sky on Swings, which is composed by Lembit Beecher with a libretto by. Uh, Hannah Moscovich, and already by having a female librettist on our scale, that gets you 10 points, obviously 15 points with the trifecta post-1950, post-2000 in a world premiere. Three points for a female director, also got an, a singer of color in Marietta Simpson, 29 points. <laughs> For Sky on Swings. That's more than most seasons. Yeah. <laughs> that is so true, so true, Matt. So true. All right, so then it starts to taper off a little bit. Midsummer Night's Dream by Benjamin Britten. It's the Robert oh, Carson production. Still, five points. Now, La Boheme follows that. On our scale, on our metric, you lose points when you do Boheme. <laughs> but again, if, you are only do- if you're doing one chestnut opera to round out a season... That is really groundbreaking. That I mean, that is variety. That, that I I have nothing to quibble with about Fair that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, mimis, Don, mimis, Don, mimis, mimis. Thank you. Right. Uh, Don Giovanni follows that. That's a wash. It's zero points. And then strong finish. It's a piece called "Empty the House" with a female composer in Renee Orth, Mark Campbell, the librettist. Who? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Has he even written a libretto before? We might have to start deducting points from Mark Campbell librettos. <laughs> <laughs> They're everywhere. <laughs> oh, my gosh. How on a side my... note, thank you for coming on our show a couple weeks ago, Mark. <laughs> yes, that's right. Every, every time you do a Mark Campbell show, you lose points because, like, everybody's doing it. I mean, we lost, we lost exactly. points when we had him yeah. on. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and that show, Empty the House, also has a female conductor. That would be Karina Kanalakis. So a total of 28 points just uh, on that show alone, giving them a grand total of 88 points. I think that's a new record, isn't it? It is, but if we were... So we... 
George went the next step because he really likes crunching numbers. I tell did. tell us what comes what came next. Well, all right. So uh, previously on our show, the, the winner was was the hometown hero, Chicago Opera Theater, with forty three points. Obviously, eighty eight. You know, eighty eight to forty three. That's like uh, an NC. That's a like di- a one versus sixteen. That's oh, is uh, what you would be saying if, <laughs> if Virginia didn't lose in the first round to a 16 seed. I History, had, I'm a fan. I had them going all the way. Did you really? Yeah. Was, I had them losing in the first idea. round. Uh, you lie. No, I didn't. Um, but on an average per production, of course, that takes us down to just 11 points per production. For still, Philadelphia. still pretty impressive yeah, and right. on par with COT. And what what really impresses me about that comp- comparison is that COT is a new company. It's like the new opera company in a city that also has lyric, as we talked about right. earlier. But Opera Philadelphia is really the only the only game in town, and they're still putting on that bold of a season yeah i'm i want to go i mean i want to go too and based on their success this last year with their festival i mean that's that's gonna be the way that the lyrics gonna have to do it i know i would love to go i mean gosh opera philadelphia they're just doing everything right in my opinion I would just I would love to be at this festival. We have just a few minutes, uh, Matt. I want to throw it to over you over to you really quickly for the uh, this production of Fidelio. Yeah, I think it sounds really interesting. It's not the most in. It's not like the most piquant story in an opera. It's a little boring. It's a uh, like it it moves really slowly. The pacing is hard, and to set it in. The modern-day criminal justice system, I think, adds a twist that makes me interested to see it again. The idea, then, of recording actual prison inmates, and I'm not sure how that recording is being used in the production. It wasn't quite clear it from some clear. of the articles yeah. that I read. I mean, does that feel like slave labor to you? Well, are they paying them? Do we know that? No, they're in prison. We're well, I mean, I think you... we are paying them. Yeah, but like, I've, done, uh, I've done plenty of performances for free. <laughs> Well, then I'd be okay. I don't think anyone's so, being forced to be in like, the opera chorus. Purely if you're like a prison a... man, you can be forced to do anything. <laughs> oh God! Okay, Miss George. <laughs> George says with a straight face. <laughs> okay, but from a rehabilitation standpoint, and then talking about the justice system in America, I do think it's kind of cool that these inmates are being provided an opportunity not only to sing in a chorus, which I guess I never even thought of, but in an opera that's going to be. A new production that I, I don't know. I like the idea, George. You hate it. <laughs> I didn't. Say, I didn't say I hate it. I you didn't not say you. You can hated hear it in it. the voice. I just. I wish I knew a little bit more about the logistics of it. Basically, that's a good. That's a fair that, point. That is fair because yeah. the all all of the are they gonna uh, like? You mean like using recording? Is it a video or these guys? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and the articles that I read shed some light onto it, but um, I, I mean, I'm just. I should just tweet the guys at Heartbeat and just see. See what they say. Yeah, basically. they'll get back at us. You know, they so, probably love that publicity. Um, well, yeah, publicity is certainly what they got. That show was really all over. Hey, should we listen to this Alcina clip really quickly oh, yeah, before we um, before we wrap up this show? Yeah, check, sure. I love music lots. Yeah. Hey, friends. Um, <clears throat> I'm here in D.C. I'm in a practice room at WNO, um, and I'm here this morning because our fearless leader, Jane Glover, has dared me to... <laughs> sing the runs in Bradamante's Rage aria without ever taking a breath. So <laughs> I've never done that on stage before, but challenge accepted. So um, <clears throat> I'm in here trying to work it out, chugging my coffee, and um, I thought I would give you a peek into my practice session. So let's see, <clears throat> see how it's gone. Vorrei vendicarmi del perfido corpo, vorrei vendicarmi. Amor, dammi l'armi, ma presi fuori. Ma presta fuori. I can kind of do it sitting perfectly still at the piano. <clears throat> But the odds that I will be able to stand perfectly still on stage and deliver that <clears throat> are slim to none. So I'm going to keep practicing. <laughs> Bye. Daniela sounds a little... Yeah. <laughs> the jump from being able to do that in the practice room to being able to do it consistently on stage when nerves are going crazy, though, yeah, is a yeah. really steep... As she said. Yeah. yeah. As she said. E- like, even just beyond the staging, it you can practice a phrase a million times and never have to take an extra breath, and you get to a performance, and you're like, oh, 
crap. I, I was supposed I to freeze that. two pages I ago. I love that low, that, um, that uh, Jay Glow, Jane Glow. Jay Glow. Jay Glow. In Chicago right now. Jay Glow. She's in Chi-Town right now. She threw down and Daniela Max stood up. I love that. That yeah. was awesome. Let's wrap this up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. All right, boys. Uh, hey, what do you got? Um, I'm going to speak on behalf of Oliver first, actually. Hey, he says be sure to check out Vivica Jeannot's upcoming concert of Vivaldi Arias on April 6th and 7th with Third Coast Baroque. That's conducted by a recent guest on the OBS, actually, Ruben Dubrovsky. Matt, what you got? It's Holy Week out there, singers. Stay healthy, stay rested. Music directors, too. I got a good call. Uh, this is Toby. I just want to get a shout-out to my mom, Nancy. Happy birthday. Weston Williams. My good call, as Gross. usual, is me singing in the shower tonight. It's going to be a great concert. I'm expecting a big audience. Uh, make sure you, you, you come, come on by. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Check out his work at VoxerSchwartz.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. If you listen to the podcast version of our show, please leave a review. It's the cheapest, fastest, and bestest way to promote our work. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, even if you're on spring break in Cancun or Myrtle Beach or... Wherever the hell it is that you kids go. We're back on Monday, April 2nd at 9 p.m. Central with more opera news and hot takes. Join us. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Chicago's sound experiment. Words so tender, slowly whispered. He'd a bitter, sweet caress. Swears he never leave, he never